Welcome back to our study of the Trinity. In our last session, session one, we saw that the New Testament is thoroughly Trinitarian, that the truth about the Trinity is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. Today, we're going to dip our toes just a little bit further into the water and ask the question, is the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament? Now, the short answer to that question is no. And what I mean by that is, if you did not have the New Testament, had never read it, and you sat down and read the Old Testament from beginning to end, you would not come away from the Old Testament convinced that there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You would be convinced, or at least you would know, that the Old Testament teaches that there's only one God, only one true and living God, and that's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you would not come away from the Old Testament by itself convinced that that one God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, if you were reading the Old Testament very carefully, you might recognize that there were some things said about God that you didn't quite know how to fully explain, or some things said about another figure that sure made it sound like that figure was perhaps divine. In other words, you might come away from the Old Testament scratching your head and having some questions that could only be fully answered with the fuller revelation about God that comes in the New Testament. So the short answer is the Old Testament does not clearly reveal the truth about the Trinity. But the longer answer is there are some significant hints about the Trinity that we don't fully understand, significant hints about the Trinity in the Old Testament that we don't fully understand until we get to the New Testament. So we're going to look at some of those today. First one we're going to look at is in Genesis chapter 1. And most of these are going to focus on um, the fact that there is some uh, plurality in God, right? It's not necessarily going to be clear that there are three persons, but there is some plurality in God. And most of what we're going to see is going to point us to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. But I want to say right at the beginning, so not much of it is going to be about the Holy Spirit. But we should note right at the outset, in the very first chapter of the Bible, at the very beginning, not only does it say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but in the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit of God is mentioned there at creation. Now, not enough is said about the Holy Spirit for us to recognize at that point that the Holy Spirit is uh, a distinct person in the Godhead, right? The, the third person of the Trinity. It's not That's not clear yet. But the Spirit of God is already mentioned in just the second verse of the Bible. But the clearer hint in Genesis chapter 1 that there is some plurality in this one God comes in a very well-known verse, Genesis 1.26, where God is going to create the first man and the first woman. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what's significant about that, and what is very easy to overlook, 
is those little plural words, us and our. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, why would God be speaking in the plural instead of in the singular? Why not say, I am going to make man in my image after my likeness? He could have said that. Why is it plural? Why is it let us make man in our image after our likeness? Well, it's been suggested that God is speaking to the heavenly court, right? The angels that are around him. But that won't work because we're not made in the image of God and of angels, which is what would be implied, right? When it's, if it said, let us make man in our image, meaning God and the angels, let us make man in our image. We're not made in the image of God and of angels. We're made in the image of God. Another suggestion is that this is just a plural of majesty, something like a king or queen would use to speak of themselves, not in the singular, but in the plural, even though there's only one king or one queen, they might talk, be talking about themselves and say, we are going to do this or whatever, um, to speak in more majestic terms about themselves. Well, that's certainly possible if anybody's worthy to speak about themselves with a plural of majesty, as it's called. God certainly would be worthy to do that. But uh, what seems more likely for us who um, recognize the New Testament, right, and, and are reading the Old Testament, now knowing what the New Testament has revealed, is that this is a hint of the triunity of God, that there's one God who exists in three persons. In other words, this is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit talking together or talking amongst themselves, as it were. It's not really easy to, um, to talk about these things, to explain these things, but, but this is the Trinity right, saying, let us make man in our image. We're made in the image of the triune God, in other words. So there's a, a hint right there in the first chapter of the Bible that there's some plurality in God. Again, it's not clear that there are three persons, right? But there is a hint that um, there's something more going on than what we might be able to figure out from the Old Testament alone. We see something similar later in the prophet Isaiah, another famous passage, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has his vision where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on his throne and so on. And Isaiah hears... God speaking, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So the first half of that is singular, right? Whom shall I send? But then God says, Who will go for us? So there's another hint, right, of this plurality in God. And if we take the New Testament into account too, here's what we find. In John chapter 12, this is a fascinating passage. In John chapter 12, John is talking about Jesus and people not believing in Jesus. And he quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah 53 and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, where this passage is, who shall go for us? And here's what he says. He says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's from Isaiah 53, I think verse 1. And then he says, therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Now that's a quote, or at least a paraphrase, of what uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Just a couple of verses after, Isaiah says he heard God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then, notice what John says next. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, Whose glory did Isaiah see? Well, John's talking about Jesus in this paragraph, right? In this passage. He's saying, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. When did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus? Almost certainly, John's referring to his vision in Isaiah chapter 6. So, John is saying when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and he heard God say, Who shall go for us? Isaiah was seeing the glory of Jesus before he took on flesh, obviously. And he's seeing, in other words, the eternal Son of God in his glory before he became man. That's how John reads that, or how John explains what happens there. Another one, and this is a different one, it also comes from Isaiah, but it's a a very different kind of hint than the first couple hints that we've seen. Another very well-known passage, one that we often read at Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and you can probably repeat the rest of this, right? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But notice that second one. Mighty God. Isaiah is saying a child is going to be born who is going to be called Mighty God. Does that mean what it sounds like it means? How in the world, again, if you didn't have the New Testament, you didn't know the rest of the story, how in the world could a child be born who would be called God without somebody blaspheming by calling them God? Well, that's a head scratcher, right? Again, if you don't have the if you don't have the New Testament, if you don't know anything about Jesus, if you don't know anything about God taking on flesh and, and all the rest, that would be really hard to explain. And if you thought, well, maybe, maybe that phrase mighty God is just meant to say he's going to be really mighty or really important or really powerful or something. Just one chapter later in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21, it says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Same phrase. That the people of Israel are going to return to God, the mighty God. Same phrase, same idea. So Isaiah is telling us that a child is going to be born who will rightly be called God, mighty God. Now again, without the New Testament, how would we explain that? How would we how would we ex- explain those verses if we were teaching them, right, in the Old Testament days, before the coming of Christ. 
How would we explain that? I don't know. Right? It's, it's a strong hint right, that there's something is going to happen, something is going to take place that we can't explain fully if all we have is the Old Testament. Right? Uh, here's another one. Daniel chapter 7. In the book of Daniel, Daniel sees a vision and he says, As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now, we have no doubt about who that is, right? The Ancient of Days that he's describing, whose uh, clothing is white as snow and whose throne is fiery flames and who's uh, got a thousand thousands who served him and 10,000 times 10,000 who are standing before him. That's God. That's obviously God. He is the Ancient of Days. But the vision continues. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, who is that? We've already got the Ancient of Days, and now uh, Daniel sees this one like a son of man. So he looks like a human being. Right? He looks, he's like a son of man, looks like a, like a man, like a person. Right? And he comes to the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All people's nations and languages are going to serve him. The whole world is going to serve him, and his kingdom is never going to be destroyed. His dominion, his reign, his rule is going to be everlasting. Now, who is that? Who could that be? 